Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So I've been working as a Canadian journalist based in Europe for about five and a half years. And during that time, I've seen Vladimir Putin in person a couple of times. The first was in Sochi, Russia. I was there reporting on the Olympic Games back in 2014. And while I was there, I stopped into Canada Olympic House. It's basically a hangout for Canadian athletes, their families, friends, and fans. And there's suddenly about a dozen Russian police officers guarding the doors. People start screaming. Everyone has their cell phone cameras in the air. And I look over, and there, about 20 meters away, is the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. Now, the first thing that goes through my mind is, man, he's, he's a lot shorter than he looks on TV. But of course, he has this giant larger-than-life presence. He's smiling, he's holding a pair of Team Canada Olympic mittens, and he and his translator grab a microphone. Let us wish our teams to meet in the final. In the final. Now, it's kind of hard to hear over the cheers, but that was Putin through his translator, saying he hopes that Canada and Russia meet in the men's hockey final, a rematch of that epic Canada-USSR summit series back in 1972. That marked the first time that NHL players had ever skated against the Soviets, at a time when Soviet Russia was at the height of its power. Putin tells the crowd that he wants a rematch with Canada, except this time with Russia as the victor. Thank you. His surprise visit to Canada Olympic House receives a rock star reception. The hundred or so Canadians in the crowd are going crazy. And his prediction about the men's hockey proved half true. Canada did advance to the finals and won gold, though it would be against Sweden, not Russia. And just days after those Sochi Olympics finished on a high note, that smiling, hockey-loving President Putin invaded Ukraine. Ukrainian officials say at least 16 civilians have been killed in the past 24 hours in renewed fighting in the east of the country. That invasion and the subsequent annexation of Crimea spiraled into a war that has killed 10,000 people by some counts and is still going on right now. And it also reignited a diplomatic war between Russia and the West. Canada has been uh, unequivocal in our condemnation of uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. But through all of that, the Russian president appears utterly unfazed. Vladimir Putin has ruled over the world's largest country for nearly two decades. But for many, he remains a mystery. One this podcast hopes to unravel with help from those who know him best, including a former fellow Russian secret agent. 
I believe I, I have you know, more or less have an idea how he's thinking as a as next KGB officer. I'm Jeff Semple, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and this is Russia Rising. On this episode, we'll explore how a poor kid from a tough neighborhood became a secret agent, one of the world's wealthiest men, and Russia's longest-serving leader since Stalin, while also being accused of a laundry list of atrocities. The government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. What we need to do is understand Vladimir Putin for what he is, a murderer and a thug. But to truly understand what motivates Putin, why he does what he does, we need to know where he came from. Hello? Hi, Arkady. It's Jeff Semple calling from Global News. I reached out to Arkady Ostrovsky, the Russian editor for The Economist magazine. Ostrovsky was born in Moscow, has spent much of his career in Russia, and he literally wrote the book on Putin's early years a biography called The Invention of Russia. A lot of details from Putin's childhood come from the man himself. Putin has described growing up in a tough neighborhood in what was then Leningrad. His father was a foreman at a local factory, and they lived in a rat-infested communal housing block where several families shared a single apartment. As a kid, Putin was small for his age, and was always getting into fights with kids who were bigger and stronger. But I think just growing up in the pretty tough the streets of Leningrad, um, in a quite a thuggish atmosphere, I think there was a lot of things he learned from the street fights which he was engaged in. Um, he did judo, he wanted to be, uh, you know, physically stand up to the kids who were picking at him. He should be decent. In a recent TV interview, Putin said the Leningrad street taught him an important lesson. If a fight is inevitable, you need to throw the first punch. Like most kids, Putin wasn't too concerned with global affairs, and he certainly never dreamed of being a politician or becoming president. Instead, he wanted to be a sailor or maybe a pilot. But one day, as a teenager, he says he saw a movie that would change his life. The 1968 film The Shield and the Sword depicted the story of a fictional Russian spy named Alexander Belov. The guy seemed invincible. In the movie, he infiltrated Nazi Germany and obtained vital intelligence. Belov was the Soviet Union's answer to a certain fictional British super spy. Like 007, Belov had nerves of steel and was skilled at manipulating other people. He also spoke fluent German, and so too did a young Vladimir Putin. In an interview decades later, Putin recalled becoming obsessed with the film, explaining that what amazed him most was how one spy could decide the fate of thousands of people. After graduating university with a law degree in 1975, Putin signed up to the Soviet secret service, the KGB. 
I think most people have created a sort of cartoon image of, of Putin. That's Stephen Lee Myers, another Putin biographer and veteran journalist with The New York Times. He says Putin may have been inspired by a super spy, but he himself was not one. Because a lot of people uh, think of Vladimir Putin as, you know, a former spy, um, you know, a KGB agent and all that. In fact, he was never a spy. He was a he was an officer in the KGB. He served a not illustrious career, to be honest, um, in, in the KGB. He didn't rise very fast. He, you know, he he seems to have had some some problems. He didn't really. I mean, he learned German as a young man, and uh, as a, and for that reason, if he were successful or had a great career in the KGB, he would have gone abroad, and served undercover somewhere uh, in the West. But in fact, he went to East Germany, which was an ally of the Soviet Union, of course, and and served in Dresden, not even in Berlin. Um, so it was seen as a kind of a, a mundane career and even a mundane job that he had. But that mundane desk job suddenly got a lot more interesting in 1989. After the Berlin Wall came down in November, the protests spilled into East Germany, and they landed right on Putin's doorstep. And one night in December of 1989, he was at the uh, the little villa in Dresden where he worked, which is around the corner from a uh, very notorious uh, prison uh, headquarters of the East German secret police, the Stasi. And the protest in Dresden, as they were elsewhere in uh, East Germany, had continued um, against the government at the time. And a very large crowd had gathered outside the Stasi headquarters. And, you know, it was for, for the, the East Germans inside, I'm sure, a terrifying moment. In a recent TV interview, Putin himself described peering through the window at the crowds gathering outside his KGB office. The guard who was posted at the entrance took off. And Putin fired up the furnace and started burning secret Soviet documents. Obviously, we couldn't just lay our secret intelligence documents and details in the street. We couldn't turn the information over to anyone. So we had to demonstrate our willingness to act. Putin was a junior officer, but his boss was away, so he picked up the phone and called for backup. He had called, you know, what was in the Soviet army that was in uh, East Germany asking for help or protection um, against what he considered to be a mob. And, uh, you know, he, the, the reply he got was that there was nothing they could do because they had no orders from Moscow. Moscow is silent, he was told. Moscow is silent. So Putin stepped outside to confront the crowd alone. And he eventually came out and told everybody uh, that was outside uh, that it was a diplomatic compound and that it was protected and that if anybody tried to come in, he would tell the guards to open fire. Um, and that sort of took the, the wind out of the uh, sails of the crowd a bit and they went back to the what was then a celebration. That moment seemed to really uh, represent to him the collapse of central government authority, the authority of the nation. Uh, and that's something that he often repeats over and over. It can never happen because if that happens in Russia, there will be chaos. 
the Soviet Union dissolved into 15 new countries, including the new Russian Federation, which had just lost 2 million square miles of territory. Putin watched it crumble before his eyes. In his mind, Russia was falling apart in the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, the, the other republics of the Soviet Union left and became independent nations, you know, Belarus, the Baltic states, the Central Asian nations. Um, but Russia, he was going to hold together. And he really believes that de democracy or the, the will of the people or the mob rule, as he sees it, is a dangerous thing. Uh, that if you leave that unchecked, it will tear our country apart. That's how he views it. He would later call the collapse of the Soviet Union one of the great geopolitical disasters of the century, and he would make sure it never happened again. In 1991, Putin quit the KGB and entered politics, becoming deputy mayor in his hometown, what was now St. Petersburg. The 90s in Russia were brutal, suffering an economic collapse worse than the Great Depression. The country was not only adjusting to the loss of an empire, but to a whole new political system, democracy, that brought with it a lot of new freedoms and democratic institutions. But for Russia in the 90s, was also chaotic and corrupt. Fast forward to 1999, and Putin is appointed Russian Prime Minister. Now, at that time, most Russians had still never heard of him, but he quickly made a lasting impression. One of his first acts as Prime Minister was to go to war. About a month after Putin took the job, Russia was rocked by a series of bombings, targeting civilians in apartment buildings, including in Moscow. Putin went in front of the cameras and blamed the bombings on Chechen rebels. Now, Chechnya at that time had been fighting for independence from Russia in the wake of the Soviet collapse, and the bombings gave Putin the political ammunition he needed to declare war and to reclaim the region of Chechnya. Uh, it was like a short-circuit moment when the television audience of the people of Russia recognized Putin as the man who's come to to the rescue. Opinion polls show that in Russia, this is a hugely popular war. This BBC TV report on the war in Chechnya from 1999, which showed Putin visiting the Russian troops, now sounds almost prophetic. Make a note of Mr. Putin's name because this war is turning him into a national hero with the help of the right photo opportunity. Mr. Putin enjoys looking like a war leader. Ship's captain one minute, flying ace the next. <laughs> the public see Mr. Putin, a former KGB spy, as tough and decisive. He's winning the Chechen war and he's odds-on favorite to take over as president next summer from Boris Yeltsin. For Vladimir Putin, it seems the sky is the limit. As predicted, Putin was sworn in as Russian president within months, easily supplanting Boris Yeltsin. Many Russians viewed Yeltsin as pro-Western and weak, but Putin was strong. 
the years that followed, Putin waged war again, clawing back former Soviet territory from Georgia and Ukraine. And along the way, he transformed Russia's fledgling democracy into a one-man autocratic regime, what political analysts sometimes describe as a managed democracy. He uh, consolidated power. He eliminated all alternative sources of power. And remember, the only real experience that ordinary Russians had with democracy was that painful, corrupt period in the 1990s. So most weren't too concerned when Putin started rolling back those democratic advances, reducing the independence of the courts, getting rid of direct elections for regional governors, and bringing the major TV networks under his control. He's created a political system where there's no chance of drama and also a political and legal system where there's very little chance now for people to rise up against the authority of the state. And at the same time as Putin was rolling back democracy, the Russian economy, which again was devastated after the Soviet collapse, was starting to recover. He was lucky in two respects. He was lucky because Russia started recovery growth uh, which was the result of the reforms, painful reforms of the 1990s and Russian economy after a very deep recession. And of course, the oil prices helped. Uh, and further down the line, they helped more and more. Uh, so the rise in the oil price, uh, Russia suddenly had a lot of you know money coming in. So there was economic growth. I, I think this is what sort of kept him popular uh, and in power in the first two terms. The Russian constitution prevented Putin from running for a third consecutive term as president. So instead, when his time was up in 2008, he became prime minister again. But before long, the Russian economy was stalling and Putin's popularity was lagging. So he went back to his original playbook. Overseas, a fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. Tonight, Secretary of State Rice is calling on Russia to end its assault on the Republic of Georgia. Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, and launched a military campaign in Syria in 2015. And these wars gave a much-needed boost to Putin's popularity at home. Jeremy Kinsman is Canada's former ambassador to Russia. Trump came up with that slogan, make America great again, but Putin's been running it in Moscow for 12 or 14 years. And one of the denominators of, I guess, greatness is, is their memory of the time when uh, the Americans and the Soviets uh, were engaged in a kind of a joint superpower relationship that made the Russians feel they really lived in a very important country. And Putin's military campaigns also helped to expand Russia's sphere of influence. It couldn't possibly claw back all of the territory it had lost after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But by flexing his military muscle in the region, Putin could ensure that other countries in Russia's orbit would bend to his will. Except there was a problem. Putin's military aggression did not go unchallenged. Britain is pressing its European allies to stand with the United States and increase sanctions against Russia. After Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, a united bloc of Western countries, including Canada, responded with economic sanctions, tipping Russia into a recession. 
and NATO responded by deploying thousands of troops to Baltic countries bordering Russia, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland, conducting huge military exercises as a show of force to deter any further Russian aggression. Now, Russia has one of the largest militaries in the world, but by itself, it can't really compete with NATO's 29 member countries, including the United States, of course. So instead of responding with military force, the Kremlin came up with a new novel way to hit back. A dozen Russian intelligence officers were charged last hour with interfering in the 2016 U.S. election. If you've watched the news even once over the last year, you've probably heard a headline like... Tonight, new concerns that Vladimir Putin's notorious hacking teams could be trying to influence another election. This was a meddling campaign carried out by the Russians, authorized at the highest levels by Vladimir Putin himself. Besides the U.S. election, Russia has been accused of interfering in the presidential campaign in France and the Brexit referendum. Putin biographer Stephen Lee Myers says there's no question in his mind that the Russian president is working to undermine those Western democracies. The question I think that's harder to answer is what is Putin's motivation? What is, what is, what is Russia hoping to achieve or accomplish in these? And in the case of the American election 2016, I think Brexit as well, that people, the, the Russians didn't have they didn't have a candidate, per se, as much as what they hoped to achieve was some sort of disarray in the, or embarrassment to the democratic process itself. By making those Western democracies appear dysfunctional, Myers says Putin is hoping that ordinary Russians will be turned off and more likely to cling to him, to their president, who they see as strong and stable, in contrast to this chaotic political system that they're seeing in the United States. And now Putin will often point to the disarray in the U.S. and say, is this what you want? Is this what democracy brings you? If that's it, you know, we, we can't be bothered. Others believe the Kremlin's meddling in Western elections is about more than simply making democracy look bad, including Alexander Vasiliev. Or mentally, I'm closer to Putin than you may think. Vasiliev is a former KGB agent. He was recruited back in the 80s and received his Soviet spy training at around the same time as Putin. He graduated in 1985. I started in 1985 and graduated in 1987. So we had the same training. We had the same textbooks. We had the same... Uh, uh, teachers, and uh, I, I believe I, I have, you know, more or less, have an idea how he's thinking as a, as an ex KGB officer. Like Putin, Vasiliev quit the KGB after the Soviet collapse. He then worked as a journalist and published a book about the history of the KGB. But not everyone was happy about him exposing old Soviet secrets. I decided to leave Russia because I I got a threat a threat from, a, from an officer of the Russian intelligence service. So in 1996, he fled to the UK, where he still lives. But he remains a proud Russian, and he's pro-Putin, and thinks the Russian president is treated unfairly by most in the Western press. There is a certain atmosphere of uh, 
of anti-Russian hysteria when we are supposed to every, every time our computer is not working, we we should blame Putin for it. And uh, you know, you know the the uh, the Russians, you know, in Russia they have a joke about Putin. Uh, do you know the Dead Sea? The Dead Sea in the Middle East. Uh, Putin killed it. Vasilyev says that Putin still thinks like a KGB agent, and they were taught to always consider the big picture. It may surprise you, but historically, uh, the KGB intelligence service, and before that, then covered the intelligence service, they were actually very careful. Uh, they were always thinking about consequences in, ca- in case of a failure about international consequences. For that reason, Vasiliev does not believe, for example, that Putin ordered the assassination of former Russian spy Sergei Skripal in England. You have to be really, really stupid to do something like the poisoning in Salisbury three months before the World Cup. But Vasiliev has no trouble believing that Putin would interfere in Western elections in order to promote nationalist candidates, especially those who want to do away with Western alliances like NATO or the European Union. I would understand if they if they uh, launched a campaign, a tro- trolling campaign on Facebook or Twitter, for instance, for Brexit. I would understand that. I think at, the, at this moment, uh, the Kremlin would be interested in this. If we talk about the presidential election in, in the United States, probably the, the Kremlin and maybe Putin personally preferred to see Donald Trump as president, not, not Hillary Clinton. President Trump has threatened to pull out of NATO. And Brexit could spell the beginning of the end of the European Union. The weaker these Western alliances become, the easier it is for Putin to expand Russia's sphere of influence, to reassert its power over former Soviet territories without facing a unified Western resistance. And as a NATO country, Myers says Canada and its next federal election could also find itself in the crosshairs. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say the Cold War has begun again, but uh, effectively that's what's happened. And he's going to see anyone on the other side of that, Canada, the United States, all the NATO nations as part of the enemy. So the last time that I saw Vladimir Putin in person was a few years after the Russian president's surprise visit to Canada Olympic House. It was 2017. And I was in Moscow on May the 9th, which in Russia marks Victory Day, the anniversary of the Nazis' defeat. There's a massive Russian military parade in Red Square. Thousands of soldiers and military hardware, both past and present. From Second World War tanks to some of the Kremlin's 7,000 nuclear warheads. And then the military band, the chants, and the crowds fall totally silent as Russia's commander-in-chief steps to the podium. Putin tells the crowd, as it was during the Second World War, our forces today are capable of repelling any attack. 
And in that moment, I try to imagine Putin as a frightened junior KGB officer after the Berlin Wall fell with a mob literally on his doorstep as he watched his country crumble at the hands of pro-democracy protesters. In contrast, this Putin is now in complete control of the crowd in front of him and the country he's ruled for almost two decades. And the kid from Leningrad still isn't afraid to throw the first punch. For Curious Cast and Global News, this is Russia Rising, an investigative series from me, Jeff Semple, to unravel the mystery of today's Russia. If you liked what you heard, you can help spread the word by rating, reviewing, and subscribing for free now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every other app where you get your streaming audio. We can also be found at CuriousCast.ca. Next time, we'll visit the front lines of a growing cyber war, where hackers from Russia, Iran, China, and other countries are now battling for everything from the control of your city's hydro grid to the password of your online bank account. So actually, uh, you're standing in our CERT room. So this is our computer emergency response team. What are we looking at right here? Uh, this is actually a phishing page. So it's a, a page trying to uh, make people believe it's a Royal Bank of Canada page. And actually, it's a page that cyber criminals developed to try and steal the uh, username and the password for Royal Bank of Canada customers. And we'll talk to a Russian hacker about what ordinary Canadians should be doing to protect themselves from threats online. That's next time on Russia Rising. If you have a question or want to know more, follow me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN or email me at RussiaRising at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. Russia Rising is written and hosted by me, Jeff Semple. Dila Velezquez is our story producer, and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for Russia Rising. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.